1: Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late like 30 a.m.
0: Good morning, listeners. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. It is the 20th of August. Welcome, Priya.
1: <laughs> hey, Carly. It sure is the 20th of August. <laughs> Um, uh, what even is time? Hey, Mm. um, we're set for another extra month of lockdown, which is going to be interesting. Um, trying to figure out how to keep our morale high while we're, uh, staying indoors and, um, doing our best to bring you important, pressing conversations and interesting content as we go.
0: Yeah. No, we do have a really interesting show on today
1: um so Priya do you want to tell listeners what's first up yeah absolutely um I'm really excited about the first interview that we're going to play which is with Dr Sandy O'Sullivan who is a Wiradjuri person um, non-binary transgender person and an associate professor of creative industries at the University of the Sunshine Coast who joins us to talk about their development of a list of 101 Black writers and voices, which is something that they developed um, off the back of really assessing what the anti-racism conversation was happening um, after the rise of the global Black Lives Matter movement and looking at how that actually worked to recenter some white voices in the anti-racism space. So I'm really excited for people to hear that.
0: Awesome. And then you're going to hear a
1: conversation that I had
0: with Elizabeth Povinelli, um, who speaks about the Karangbing Film Collective's film, Day in the Life, which is featuring at the Melbourne International Film Festival, 68 and a Half. And Day in the Life is a multi-layered story that illuminates the ways that First Nations communities in the Northern Territory are resisting settler forms of governance and extractive capitalism on a daily basis. Um, and as well as watching Day in the Life, I also watched quite a number of other films on the weekend from a Melbourne International Film Festival. Um, so I definitely recommend for listeners, if you're looking for something to do um, whilst we're in these stage four lockdowns, then Definitely head along to MIFF. There's a lot of First Nations um, creatives who have produced work. And then also there's just some really great international documentaries. Um, I saw one about the Hong Kong um, movements uh, last year. Um, Also one about coded racism um, and how technology is, yeah, racist. um, Because it reflects a lot of the data sets that are created in the present. Um, and you can also go back and listen to a conversation that Max had, um, which is on a similar topic. I think it was last week, or possibly the week before. Um, and so, and then, um, there's also another film which I really recommend that listeners, um, check out and it's called Dark City, um, Beneath the Beat. And it's by TT the artist, who is one of my favorite artists um coming out of baltimore and yeah she talks about the incredible underground baltimore club scene um and i know that it made myself very jealous um <laughs> that i couldn't be at the clubs um right now but yeah really awesome stuff yeah
1: that sounds mad well. um mm. i think definitely something Um, something to keep the routine a little bit spicy during quarantine. Cause I feel like we all kind of slip into those grooves where if you're working from home, it's like you're living at work and then everything becomes the same. So, um, I should definitely check some of those out on the weekend as well. Break up, break up my weekend work days. Um, but yeah, we're going to come back for a bit of a longer chat at the end. Um, so now we'll go to the news with Kate Kelly.
3: Good morning, I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. Traditional owners of Jukin Gorge say they are appalled that unauthorised photos showing the destruction of two sacred sites have been offered for sale, saying the images are profiteering from our anguish. So the photographs were taken in early July, about six weeks after mining company Rio Tinto detonated explosives above two ancient rock shelters, one of which had been occupied um, by the people by the traditional owners for more than 46,000 years and was deemed to be of the highest archaeological significance in Australia. So Jukun Gorge is located on the southwestern edge of the Brockman 4 iron ore mine in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Rio Tinto told a parliamentary inquiry into the destruction of the sites that it could have avoided the gorge in digging its iron ore pit, but that bringing the edge of the mine up to the heritage-listed sites would give the company access to $135 in additional high-grade iron ore. So the aerial images show the pit surrounding works have been extended right to the edge of the gorge. They also show an area of levelled off ground above what appears to be the second damaged rock shelter, which appears to have been prepared for further work. However, Rio Tinto said that it suspended all activities with the potential impact on an Aboriginal heritage site in May, after the public backlash about the damage to the rock shelters. And multicultural groups have urged governments to invest in domestic violence support that is tailored to women from culturally diverse backgrounds. So they've said there is a serious and urgent need for more investment in domestic violence services tailored to victims from culturally diverse backgrounds, um, they told the Senate Inquiry. Multicultural groups have sounded the alarm over the lack of support during the coronavirus crisis in a series of submissions to a um, a domestic violence review. So in one um, submission from the Muslim Women's Association Linking Hearts Service, has said the heightened risk of domestic violence during the coronavirus pandemic has made the need to invest in tailored services more urgent than ever. The Domestic Violence Inquiry's findings will be used to inform the creation of the Federal Government's next national plan to reduce violence against women and their children. The Federation of Ethnic Communities Council of Australia has stressed this plan must become more inclusive of people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. And in good news, the Merrick Creek is in pristine condition thanks to locals picking up litter during their lockdown exercise. So community group Friends of the Merrick Creek has said double the amount of people are now collecting rubbish along the waterway, which flows through the northern suburbs from Melbourne, from Wallen, to where it joins the Yarra River at at Dight Falls, 70 kilometres downstream. So Waterways Coordinator Julia Carrillo said there were usually about 400 people a year cleaning along its banks, but there had been twice that number since lockdown started in March. More people have also been reporting litter with uh, the app Snap, Send, Solve, which allows users to report maintenance issues to councils, logging a 37% increase. Mary Creek users reported a build-up of litter at Coburg Lake, which the creek flows through after heavy rain crashed caused rubbish to wedge between tree trucks and branches in early May. And that was swiftly cleaned up. That app again, if anyone wants to download it, is Snap, Send, Solve. And that's all today's headlines.
4: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.
1: Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so
0: important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to
1: gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunna and Bidwell and the Naro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter...
0: Now we're going to head into a track. This one is a new one by Briggs and it features Thelma Plum. This is Go to War.
5: Anybody want a war? to war, so don't say a thing if you don't wanna go to war And we're going, ay, Yeah, we're going, ay, 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 Yeah, I'm going, ay, 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 Yeah, we're going, ay, 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 Ooh, you thought you were killing it, Pass the torch, you couldn't carry the flame, never speak my name, that's par for course, you couldn't light a cigarette, ooh You don't wanna go to war. And
0: And that song just there was Go to War by Briggs, featuring Thelma Plum.
1: You're on 3CR 855 AM, and this is the Thursday Breakfast Show. We now go to an interview with Dr. Sandy O'Sullivan to talk about their development of a list of 101 Black writers and voices. Sandy is a Wiradjuri person and an associate professor of creative industries at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Hi, Sandy. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks
4: for having me. Um, It's actually lovely to be... uh, connecting up in this way. I and mean, We were just talking before about the wonders of radio at the moment uh, and, you know, how important it is to, to feel that connection and to keep new information coming through, which is really actually the reason that we're here is to talk about the way that that was all gathered into one document, but, you know, reflects all of this amazing writing that's happening both at the moment and has happened for a long time. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a lot to talk about um, on the way that, Information about ourselves, about others, and particularly about race, is mediated through online platforms and um, through what we are exposed to and what becomes amplified in this moment. Um, So, before we jump into the conversation, would you mind letting listeners know a little bit more about yourself?
4: Who am I? Um, So, I'm Sadie Sullivan. I'm an associate professor in creative industries, as you say, up at the University of the Sunshine Coast. So. I live on New and I work on Kabi Gabi land and uh, come from the Miradjuri, which is in that state that's now known as, as New South Wales, a uh, very large country there. And I have a, um, a connection to Queensland, because I spent a lot of years living here, but I've worked in a whole lot of states around the country. Look, I'm a um, transgender person. I'm non-binary. I am really interested in gender studies, but I've worked also for many years in this sort of Indigenous studies uh, area. But my core disciplines are actually creative industries. So I've worked as a musician. I've done a major, just completed a major museums project. I keep saying just completed because I'm hoping it really happens. but <laughs> It's about to. I've got the final book coming out uh, that involved me visiting um, Uh, 470 museums around the world, and so it was an amazing kind of very involved project that was looking at representation of First Nations peoples, um, and I've got a a very important side hustle on that, looking at gender in First Nations peoples um, in those museums. And so there's a whole lot of um, work Around that sounds like I'm across every discipline, and, but everything is about identity. So everything is about representations of identity in those contexts. And so that's the main work that I do.
1: Yeah, 100%.
4: And I wouldn't call a future fellowship a side hustle. Um. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So I managed to get an ARC future fellowship that starts in December and goes for four years, which is amazing. Um, And the University of the Sunshine Coast was incredibly supportive in that they've done something that rarely happens, and that's that they've funded alongside a, a level B academic to work on the project for four years. And so that's going to um, be kind of remarkable. So I'll not only have a wonderful colleague to work with, as well as a couple of PhD students who will be funded through it, but there'll also be just the capacity to do so much more with the project. And it's very squarely about, um, very importantly, about uh, uh, the idea of representation, um, the importance of creative practice for people who are um, LGBTIQ+, plus and who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, and uh, what it means to be able to um, see yourself and uh, hear yourself represented. And so it's kind of lovely because it's always great when the government funds, uh, and the funding's like a million dollars, so it's really, you know, which covers... Um, my salary, but a whole lot of other stuff as well. And, and what's great about it is that they're, you know, supporting a whole lot of stuff on gender diversity. So that's always good.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. It's something we definitely need to see more of. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you've been talking a lot about how your work does centre on these questions of representation and identity. Um, and this is sort of really important, thinking about the amplification of the global Black Lives Matter movement this year, Mm. uh, where conversations about race and whiteness have been catapulted back into the center of public discussion. Mm. Um, And as you've done a lot of work highlighting, uh, the voices that do get amplified need to also be interrogated, because sometimes uh, there are concerns about whose voices do get amplified. So um, maybe we could start off with a bit of a discussion about the way that whiteness in particular does sort of get re-centred in these conversations and if, if you like, some comments on the uh, <laughs> what I'll call the anti-racism industry.
4: Yeah, well, the anti-racism industry is a really good way to frame it, particularly in light of the two uh, academics or workers in that space that were the most um, promoted during... Um, the beginning of this resurgence of Black Lives Matter um, that came after the, the murder of George Floyd. Um, and, you know, in a, in a, what happened in the, you know, the country that we now know, know as Australia was that there was a whole lot of resistance that came up for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who were really concerned and had been for... Um, Decades uh, longer, but certainly decades in terms of you know a concerted effort to to challenge deaths in custody. Which um, you know it's, it's at the time of um, of writing that particular work, there was 432 um, people who'd who'd uh, died in custody, and there hadn't been one prosecution, which is pr- pretty amazing. But yeah, look, there were um, the the fact that the number one bestseller on the New York Times um, uh, was uh, Robin DiAngelo uh, with White Fragility was really shocking to me. I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. I thought it can't be that it's a white writer who is writing on effectively on whiteness and responses to racism who becomes the response to Black Lives Matter. It just seems so out of step. And I actually think People who were buying the book and supporting that didn't put two and two together. I don't think they were necessarily doing anything other than thinking they were doing the right thing. The other person who was getting trotted out a huge amount was Jane Elliott with the Blue Blue Eyes, Brown Eyes project. And, you know, both of them have been a part of, a major part of an industry on um, understanding racism in white people. You know, it wasn't really about... um, anything to do with with understanding racism it was to do with the idea of stopping it you know so it was this very strange um beast that just seemed to be seemed to ignore most people in the world and focused just on people who you know by and large have have the most power and so it was really a concern uh and when that was happening i just thought this is ridiculous why is everybody sending this out when we've got so many people who are writing amazing things and even at the time interestingly there was a uh, there was a person who had uh, who had written about the Black Lives Matter movement in Australia just a couple of days before a couple of Aboriginal writers wrote about it and I thought I almost promoted that and I thought why am I doing that too like actually there'll be people who are writing about this and there were so it started out think I I started out thinking why don't I come up with a list of maybe 10 resources that are about you know because lots of people are writing about this right now it's a great big flurry but then I just went this is crazy there's so much uh that's being written uh uh, about everything. So why don't we come up with a list of, from uh, black writers in Australia, most of whom are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, um, and, uh, and actually just tell people about that. The number one thing that happens um, for me with uh, people asking me for advice as an academic, as a, as a black academic in Australia, is this wacky thing of just saying, oh, you know, I've been in education for for 20 years and, you know, there just doesn't seem to be any, you know, Aboriginal people writing about the area, which is crazy because I could point them to maybe 5,000 pieces of scholarly writing which, you know, means that they actually don't understand their discipline very well. So, OK, my rant off, what I was actually really then trying to do is to focus in and just to say, well, what if I give them a smattering across a lot of disciplines and put it into a 100 list or 101 um, list and then um, tweet it out and say, look, instead of... Of citing white writers, um, why don 't you cite some of these black writers and It got a lot of um, retweets and so on and a lot of interest. but what I really found was that people wanted to have a kind of compiled list as well i mean it 's like it 's not just laziness it 's people not knowing as well, and you can 't know every discipline area, and you know you can 't know every and so it, it ranged from academics um, there were a lot of journalists, 16 journalists. Uh, there's, it's missing huge amounts of people. I mean, there's, there's only, I think, 85 people. So there's quite a few repeated, um, which means there just have to be thousands more of these lists, which is, you know, what I intend to do. So I've got a couple more coming out in September that start to have some directed focus. But this one and all subsequent ones are going to be hosted on AusLit. Uh, the AusLit website on the BlackWords section of the AusLit website, which is fantastic. So, um, And I love that because BlackWords actually just has uh, listings of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers from around the country. Pretty much anyone who's published online or in, um, you know, in uh, offline um, spaces is listed there and has a profile. So, um, So it means that it links up to them and people can see other work. So, yeah.
1: If you're just tuning in, that was the first part of a conversation with Dr. Sandy O'Sullivan on the 101 links to Black writers and voices list and on decentering whiteness in anti-racism work. Now for part two of my chat with Dr. Sandy O'Sullivan on the process of curating the 101 list of Black Writers and Voices, where we talk about queerness and the 101 lists to come. I mean, I think that's it's such a valuable sort of intervention into these public discussions as well, because something that I've seen, I definitely don't want to credit this thought to myself because I've I've done so much. Um, I've, I've appreciated so much of what's been uh, published on uh, both US-based and Australian-based Black Twitter um, is conversations as well about how people are in such a rush to um, learn how to not be racist that they go for um, the obvious text that will hopefully give them a window into, you know, how to how to potentially deconstruct some of that behavior. Um, but it also has turned into an industry in itself, right? Like we see, uh, you know, the amount that people charge for talks, the amount of money that gets made off of this, um, which, you know, conveniently also avoids a critique of capitalism. Um, but yeah, um, it's just such a, it's just such an interesting, interesting landscape, the, the anti-racism work world. Um, and yeah, I was also wondering if you could speak to the importance of curating this specific list, because some of what we've seen is, um, People maybe asking for a list of things and many lists being cobbled together that sometimes bring together quite um, incompatible sources when they 're thinking about uh, oh, what, what are things that mention race? quick we, we need to put together a oh, yeah, list of all the yeah. things that mention race
4: yeah and I intentionally didn 't want to do that, um, but one of the reasons why it 's a, a smattering of disciplines is not just to give people a sense that we 're riding across all of these areas it's also because people write across more than one discipline area as an example. And so when you're looking for something on race, it's unlikely that you're looking for something with a keyword of race when you're talking about an Aboriginal person writing into it, but they're really likely to be writing that. And so it's, so it was really important with tags to not keep putting race down or even racism necessarily, because often there was something more involved than that. And, you know, I so agree with you about the the weirdness of these workshops that people do, you know, the idea of going into a three hour workshop and coming out and being anti-racist is just so ridiculous that I've worked with people who've done that over the years and they come out exactly as racist as they went in, but they know the language they're not meant to use and it doesn't necessarily change who they are. And sometimes those things work and they can have a bit of a dent, you know, but it's, there's also a big risk. And I think this was again, one of the reasons for curating the list in the way that it it has been, there's a risk that people will only see you or see um, race as one, um, as a very one-dimensional thing, and then people who belong in that space from their um, way of thinking as only having that. And, you know, you and I experience that with, um, you know, with race and gender. Um, And, you know, lots of of people have a confounded if they think you're there for one thing and you turn out to be there for something else as well, or in their mind, that's true, even though you've actually just turned up as a person. Um, So there's this whole notion that you can't be more than one thing. And, and that, isn't extended to the mainstream. The mainstream can be many things. And so, you know, the, and that's kind of, you know, an essential part of the critique of white feminism, for instance, that Aileen Morton-Robinson has done such a remarkable um, body of work on. And, of course, you know, um, she's one of the people who's mentioned in the, the 101. And so, I, you know, the other thing is, is that how much work we do because people send us emails. I mean, I get emails... Probably 10 a week from people asking me for things randomly, random strangers. I mean, asking me to come up with work for them and to do this work and to um, give them an idea of what they're trying to find. And honestly, a little bit of it was an opportunity to be able to cut and paste it into an email and send it back to people. So it was really, so there was even a bit of not laziness, but kind of, you know, saying, actually, there is a problem. You know, we've got this dreadful site, which I won't mention, but, you know, it's a site that's on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australia that's available when people search. And any academic who might be listening, and probably a lot of students actually, would know what this site is because if you've got anything where you've had to, then you'll, you'll see it. It's got all the answers except it's garbage. It's written by a non-Indigenous person who has no clue, no background and no experience, but knows how to exploit Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And so it's filled with misinformation and incorrect information and so on. But, you know, it's the source. And the reason it's the source is that none of us are going to come up with a list of um, everything that involves everyone. And I've I've used the example before of saying you wouldn't sort of ask white people to say, where's the list about everything that white people care about? Like, what's that website? Um, called, is it the government website or is it like every website or you know, so again it's that idea of the reduction and that idea of the reduced kind of understanding and it's it's frustrating of course Um, so Hopefully, what this does is expand, and so the new lists will have a level of um, of curation to them that works a little differently to the hundred and one. Apart from anything else, it's not just about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. That was about a recentering, particularly the way the word black is used in the context of Australia. And people will say black b l a k, and they'll say black b l a c k, but you know the kind of uh, for somebody my age, and I've been um, I'm. 54. um, And uh, I've mostly worked as a musician and academic across my life. Um, But, you know, obviously what you do outside of (laughs) of that is be a community person. And, you know, truthfully, I didn't grow up saying Wiradjuri. It just wasn't a thing when I was a child. Um, So uh, I knew where I came from, but I certainly didn't think about language group in that way. And, um, so we would say Aboriginal, we would say Black, and so for a whole lot of people that are, you know, still alive, um, that was a really essential way of thinking um, of oneself. And uh, it's so, so Black means something in the context of Australia, but of course. I'm really interested, as I think a whole lot of people are, in what's happening internationally in Indigenous contexts, what's happening with people of colour around the world. And I'm concerned to hear, you know, their voices and read their work um, and see it have a level of prominence that it hasn't had. Um, and I'm, I, the one thing that's happened to me since those lists have come out is that dozens of people have, told, have sent me... Uh, messages or emails, uh, uh, probably two dozen, say, uh, people have sent me me with white writers that they think should be on the list. Um, And, you know, just completely not getting it. And then I've explained, because maybe they just don't get it. And it's, you know, and people have argued with me about it, um, which has been really fascinating, you know. Uh, But there's no one who's writing across that area. And, of course, they're often not my discipline areas that I can still find people who are writing across that area um because it's not true
1: so yeah yeah absolutely and it sort of comes back to this um this sort of notion of voyeurism um in the anti racism space where um people might have had their own transformative journey of becoming quote unquote not racist and try and maybe bring other white people along with them on that journey which is you know on, on one level uh, it's it's important to do that that in that work of self reflexivity rather and interrogation um, but it's also interesting when it turns into a whole industry um, in itself and I think that's why um, I find it really uh, generative that the list that you've curated here um, the one uh, the, the first list the 101 black writers and voices um, really attends to those issues of Uh, B-L-A-K slash B-L-A-C-K, but also um, settler colonialism and, you know, explicitly referring to texts that then address issues of colonization as well, uh, because, you know, sometimes the deflecting that happens in public discussion here around Black Lives Matter is, you know, moving away from concerns around whose land we're standing on in the first place.
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I, I think the the best example of it, and I'd, I'd written a little bit about this um, in a piece that I that I have up on the Australian Museum site. I'm just finishing off a few pieces for them at the moment that interrogate this a bit more. But it's a, a really interesting uh, reflection that in Australia, a lot of people will say, um, and they did straight after um, after the murder of, of George Floyd. That we don't have that kind of racism here. Um, they would say that, you know, and those same people are the people that many, of pe- many people listening will know this. Um, people saying, oh, it's, you know, just imagine if you were colonized though by the Spanish or the French, and you're really lucky that you got colonized by the British. Really? I mean, it's uh, it's hilarious i mean it's absolutely appalling um and uh, and outrageous and uh, and it's it's not true <laughs> basically you know it is uh so shocking but that's kind of how the colonial project works it's about who does it better. <laughs> so, so of course the promotion of it is this idea of doing it better, but better for whom, you know, and so part of this is the challenge to that, is the challenge to the colonial project by saying actually the people who are disrupting this and I don't care if someone is an academic or a journalist or is, is writing an opinion piece from community, their work is as valid, uh, you know, as course it is and it's as important and as a scholar I feel the same way. I argue with editors all the time um, and I will always argue with editors about putting in um, first person's voice. Um, So, so, uh, you know, making sure that it's not secondary documentation of that voice and that it's not filtered through something if it's available in another form. And that's, um, you know, that's a kind of, the The academy, the universities are a really tricky place they're they 're not great you know they're they really aren't and they reinforce a whole lot of this stuff and so anything that kicks back against it it might seem like it's all very scholarly and unimportant, but it's not you know it's really crucial that we that we do something um, to challenge that so yeah.
1: yeah, and I mean that also sort of decenters the idea that that people theorizing around race and racism and around anti-blackness and settler colonialism can only exist within the academy, right? Because oh, yeah. people that are doing that thinking and theorizing are all over the place. They're in community, they're poets, you know, they're journalists, they're, they're writing from a variety of different spaces, hip hop artists or theorists, you know, Absolutely. like, um, so I think, yeah, it's really important as well. The variety of sources that you've included in, in that list too, because I think it showcases the, number of different standpoints that have, that have been engaged in this type of theorizing around race and racism that hopefully um, displaces some of that um, navel-gazing type work that, that might be reproduced by some of the other works that we were critiquing before. Um, so maybe I could get you to foreshadow some of the 101 lists to come mm-hmm. and, and what you're working on at the moment.
4: Yeah, the the main four that I'm doing right now, though, I keep um, putting everything onto a master list and then kind of looking at it again and trying to shape it around um, what needs to be there. And I've got about 200, but the reason I'm not doing it really quickly is I actually have to read all of the pieces. So I'm not um, just putting them on there because I hear about them or I read the name of it. I, I have to actually engage with it. Um, and, and that's not because I'm approving of it. It's just because I need to know what they're saying, you know. Um, so it's, uh, but also it is through the lens of me. I know that. I know that's, that's just as problematic. Um, but I think you reveal who you are in that space and you reveal what your um, ideas are. And then people know that. And hopefully other people come up with lists too, you know, and um, they can be hosted there as well. I think that would be amazing. Um, but the main ones at the moment are I'm really interested in gender and sexuality in Indigenous contexts, obviously. Very interested in it. I have a massive list, of course. So that will make sense to be a list. And I'm trying to make sure stuff's current as well, even though sometimes it's also really classic, important pieces that people should know. Um, but, I, you know, that I, I think people will often say, look, I just don't know anyone who's thinking about this and... Sometimes it'll be people who are across gender studies in Australia, for instance, um, uh, or across education in Australia, or across whatever they're across. And, and I'm, I'm saying academics, but actually all of this is accessible. So this is the other problem, is lots of academic stuff is behind a paywall. So I've tried to make sure stuff isn't in the first instance, but I will have a list that also is trapped behind a paywall for, that'll only probably be accessible to certain people, which is a bit frustrating, but you know, is curated in that way. Um, so I'm going to come up with one of those lists. I don't know how many um, pieces will be on there, but I'm going to keep it as a bit of a rolling list of uh, like one, two, three, et cetera. And then one on creative practice as well that's not just about words. Now, this was really about the idea of people's own words. And so I think there's one instance where someone else has, on the current list, where someone else has written it or has edited it, but it had an enormous amount of their they're speaking on there. But in every other instance, it's actually them writing it. So it's not someone being interviewed. It's their name on there. And that's what I'm trying to do with these other lists as well. So and then it goes to uh, I I think it's important to have people of colour in Australia. Um, and because I think what's happening then in Australia is different to what's happening in the rest of the world. However, they're also in the rest of the world as we all are. So, um, so there's also going to be a broader list, um, one that that looks at international indigeneity um, more broadly. And I don't know if that just becomes a scattergun approach like the one, first one hundred one list. I'm not sure at the moment, and I think it will because that's the one that I've kind of got good to go for September. And, um, and then there'll be a range of other ones, but I think it's important to have list of of black writers that aren't from Australia. And, you know, so I think part of that is, you know, reminders. I talked about the concern about D'Angelo before, you know, one of the main concerns I've got about that book, frankly, is that there is a lot of writing in there that um, is very similar to the thoughts of black writers in the U.S. Um, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, so so uh, there, there are four writers in particular across, up to the to the 20s where you know this is these are actually ideas that they trotted out, and instead, and you know she hasn't cited them. She hasn't cited people like. Um, Mel Painter, you know, who wrote the history of white people, you know, um, who's an amazing black author who really tracks a whole lot of those constructions of whiteness, um, but of course, really is constructing the idea of the rest of us. And, uh, you know, and so I'm annoyed by that. uh, And I see a whole new group of people who come out behind her. Not doing that too, you know, and failing to um, to address that, but also you know like crucially and oh, sorry i 'll finish on this, but crucially the the reason that i 'm coming up with a list of the of the gender um, and sexuality kind of understandings in terms of indigeneity in particular is because you know uh, constructions of gender and sexuality are so so centrally the colonial project Um, and they're challenged by Indigenous people around the world in different ways and so being able to come up with um, material that uh, addresses that is so it's not about people being able to cite it when they write stuff it's actually being people being able to learn something and that's what these 101 lists are for yeah I was annoyed that people were citing stuff but I wanted people to read it not to read it just so that they could put it into their own work or make sense of it themselves, but also to read it so that they could see exactly what these thought processes were and then maybe with that to make sense of it themselves. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a really beautiful way to sort of wrap up because thinking about citational politics here and thinking about, um, because I know you mentioned, you know, and any of these lists that you curate is going to be mediated by your own thinking and what you prioritize. But also it's just a, it's a beautiful window into the um, community of writing and scholarship and creative practice that you have decided to become a part of through engaging with particular, particular texts, particular, um, particular soundscapes. And so I think it's really, yeah, it's really important to have these, lists not as you know the be all and end all for education about race and whiteness but more as a as a critical intervention into how we engage in that reflection um from our own particular standpoints and to have a crucial and important conversation with ourselves when we do read these texts rather than just reading it to then uh tweet a link to it and say uh people should check this out rather than sitting with it for a bit yeah um yeah, so uh, is there anything else that we haven't spoken about that you'd like to raise before we
4: finish up? I, I think probably the the key thing is just that last point that I'd made about, um, about how Indigenous people feel about gender and sexuality. I don't think that many non-Indigenous people think about the information that we can provide them as Indigenous people to actually help them (laughs) you know i don't think so you know i think i think they imagine that it somehow helps us and that it gets us up to you know scratch because i think that's what the idea of the um of the close the gap is about a deficit model that's about getting up to normal and i think what we're actually doing in a whole lot of these spaces and we're doing it across all of the writing that i'm including but particularly across something like gender that has been so traumatic um you know particularly for you know trans people um and particularly for um trans people who would otherwise have a level of privilege um they've been traumatized because they lose privilege with it you know and to look at cultures and communities where that's not happening, but also to remind our own communities about that. Because I don't have fantasies about our own community that we're not affected by the colonial project. And so part of it is, this, is, this helps us grow. You know, like learning and reading this stuff, oh, it was amazing reading those 101 pieces because a couple of them I knew already, uh, like one of them's mine, but, you know, but the others I really hadn't read and I'd done exactly what you just talked about. I had kind of read a bit of it and went, oh, I'll look at that later, but I better tweet that. And, you know, and then I went back and read it and thought, oh my God, that is brilliant. You know, and I kind of gave myself a bit of a nudge after that and said, don't do that unless you've read it, you know? And I, so there's, absolute joy and wonder in those 101 there's amazing stuff there's incredible diversity um, in there of course there is because uh, why wouldn't there be and yeah so i, I think it's really worth a, a a look so again it's on the oslit website under black words um so the black words, uh area has some remarkable stuff in there if you're looking for resources or just interested in reading about aboriginal and Torres strait islander writing oslit has um has set up the black words or uh, um, site and it's all, you know, uh, constructed, curated, made by, um, black writers. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, I mean, I'll definitely have
1: to check it out and I should flag that with my students as well. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah uh, much better than, uh, the site that will not be named that we, <laughs> right. that we have in our, uh, in our course list saying, uh, do not refer to this. <laughs> um, Yes, so. But yes, you've, you've told us where we can find um, the list and more information, but uh, where can listeners find you online and, and keep uh, hearing about the work that you're doing?
4: Uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and um, stuff. <laughs> but I think I'll probably post up um, material there. I uh, have an ongoing relationship with Indigenous X, and Indigenous X is a wonderful site to find out a whole lot of information. First Nations people's stories, own ideas. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you can find me on any of those uh, platforms and I'm easy to find, I think, on, on all of that. And hopefully our website will update it a little bit um, shortly with all of the exciting new information about the Future Fellowship. But, yeah, yeah, lovely.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sandy. It's been a real uh, honour to talk with you about this and really want to have you back on to talk more about queerness.
4: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, um, it's just there all the way through the whole thing. So there, there you go. I mean, of course it is because we're pretty queer. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, but awesome. Thank you. No worries. That was an interview with Dr. Sandy O'Sullivan, a Wiradjuri person and an associate professor of creative industries at the University of the Sunshine Coast, who joined me to talk about their development of a list of 101 black writers and voices.
6: Every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Ayan. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio,
1: 855 AM.
0: You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 855 AM. Okay, so let's go into a song. This one is Hoodsies The Land.
6: I got mask on her face, she a lady Gaga. We shoot them hips and we make them cha cha. I wanna roll round in Valentino. See I'm coming in hot like an empanada. Mask on her face, she a lady Gaga. We shoot them hips and we make them cha cha. I wanna roll round in Valentino. See I'm coming in hot like an empanada. Whoa, whoa, come to the area. Whoa, whoa, come to the area. Whoa, whoa, come to the area. Off. I want two spins in before cut off. I hopped in a whip, then spun off yeah. I don't talk to girl, I just She's lock off I with the whole damn game on my back, my back. Just like an emo, I'm dressed in all black See, I'll lose a girl, when I see the girl But I still have a calling right back Just back. like that, how do I do it, rude girl Sit right there, I'll prove I'll it, it. I'll prove See, they it. talking this and they talking that so, And got all this pride, so, but won't choose it man. I'm that young girl veteran I go deep, so deep for the brethren's, uh. the brethren's I'm getting that leverage So it's time for war when I'm heading in like just wait and bleed I'm sinking shots Like I'm getting threes Everybody want a piece of me On your bike And stop begging please Jeez Don't mess with it I move with the sound When I get with it Yeah Set with it I'm getting the crown When I flex with it You in a thug You in a top dog Aye I make them girls Run to my land When I say what's up dog Ay, Aye you in a thug, you in a top dog Aye, I way. made them girls, run to my land Wanna say what's up, what's up, what's up My land go, masks gonna face of the Lady Gaga We shoot them hips and we make them cha I wanna roll around in Balintiaga See, I'm coming here hot like an empanada Masks gonna face of the Lady Gaga We shoot them hips and we make them cha-cha I wanna roll around in Balintiaga See, I'm coming here hot like an empanada like come to the area like, whoa, whoa, come to the area Come to the area, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. come to the area. Like, there's so many snakes out here, trying to get money, trying to get dosh, we do what it takes out here, trying to get honey, don't care what the cost, I dabble with ease, they call me the boss, I want it in threes, they give me the lot, she telling me please, I tell her to stop, I'm making her freeze when I'm in the spa, I count one, two, three, then lean and lean, I rip the tags on my jeans, they say, who do, what do you mean, that means that I got them for free. City. I ain't a prick, but I'm rocking dickies. I fit it so cold that I'm getting chilly. Hush your teeth and don't get lippy. Tell me you moves like, like this. Tell me you like this. Now tell me you get in a mood like this. Now tell me you spit in a booth like this. I like, whoa, whoa, who will I? am pulling a plug like a headphone killer. I'm switching it up trying to get that squilla. I'm shooting my shot like my last name Miller. You in a thug, you in a top dog. Ay, I'll make them girls run to my land when I say what's up, dog. Ay, ay. What's up? What's up? My land go the face of the Lady Gaga. We shoot them hips and we make them cha I want to roll around in Balintiaga. See, I'm coming in hot like an empanada. Most for the face of the Lady Gaga. We shoot them hips and we make them cha I want to roll around in Balintiaga. See, I'm coming in hot like an empanada.
0: That song there was The Land by Hudzi, who's an artist from Aotearoa. 3CR, here to stay. The Melbourne International Film Festival, 68 and a Half, has been streaming films across the continent from the 6th of August, and MIF will be screening films until Sunday the 23rd of August. Today, I'm joined by Elizabeth Povanelli, director of A Day in the Life. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us on 3CR Thursday Breakfast.
2: Thank you, and thank you on behalf of the entire collective.
0: The film Day in the Life has been produced by the Karabing Film Collective. So can you talk us through how this collective formed and some of the films that Karabing has also created previously?
2: Yeah, totally. Um, The collective started, we often now say 2010. Um, And it started in the context of two social conditions, really two two national conditions. And one was the long arm of the Land Rights Act up north that for all the good it did, and it did a lot of good, it, it was able to um, transfer indigenous country from a settler context back to where it belonged. Um, But for all that, the good it did, the Land Rights Act also divided communities according to settler and very conservative social anthropological notions of the traditional owner. And so it it created these little um, groups that uh, fit settler understandings of how nations and peoples work. So since the '76 to the present, we've seen the corrosive effects of that kind of division. Because in Kooribinge traditions, everyone knew where their land was, right? So everyone had their own run land, as Linda Yerwin puts it, their own land or their own run in Creole. But to hold and care for your land, you had to maintain the connections amongst peoples place. and places, and as Rex Edmonds of the collective puts it, settlers, instead of recognizing the deep connections necessary to hold your land, they only looked at the divisions between land. And so by 2007, those very divisive, divisive um, legal uh, mechanisms had created very tense conditions in the community where the members of Cottabing lived. And the result was violence that uh, in the community, and about mm, 50 people left the community and left jobs. Uh, and went off and were living in tents at the edge of uh, what the settler state considered their proper country, if you know what I mean. um, Now, that was in 2007. And we also know what happened in 2007, right? So just as they're thinking, the these the members that would, the people that would become Cotterby are thinking, you know, we, maybe we should start over or go back and try and establish a community closer to what the state recognizes as our country. The intervention happened and all funding was pulled off. They were basically abandoned on the side of the Anson Bay. Um, at that point, you know, I had grown up with everybody. I went to Bill in 1984 as a philosopher, actually. Uh, and we'd done all kinds of things together. So we were sitting around on the beach and they were living in tents and I was coming and going as I always do. And the question was how to start anew in these, Conditions And how to represent to a public that didn't understand the actual conditions of being kind of an ordinary Indigenous person living in these remote or semi-remote or rural communities. How to represent in the sense of intervening in a public discourse. And one of one of uh, the members, well, we weren't talking about it yet, but anyways, one of the people said, you know, I just wanted to be in the movies. Why don't we? Why don't we make movies? And that's how it started, just like that. And everyone, I didn't, I wasn't a movie maker, nobody else was a movie maker. I mean, they're really funny and smart and talented and, you know, both serious and handsome, as you can see in our movies. And so, but the, Cotter Bing's spirit is, well, we just do it. Mm. Beth, you go to New York, you find someone who can teach us basic craft. They had, they had a very particular idea what they wanted the films to look like. Um, and so we, our thir- first film was Day in the Life. Ah, what am I saying? Our first film was <laughs> When the Dogs Talked which we showed at Melbourne, at MIFF. And that was, we showed that we, I think that came out in 2012, maybe? We're not very good at these dates. Uh, And we've made seven, maybe, seven. So that gives you a little sense of at least how we started. Mm,
0: Absolutely. And A Day in the Life um, is trying to tackle quite a lot of issues um, happening up in the Northern Territory um, and all across this colonial continent as well. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about, yeah, some of the issues um, that is trying to be raised in the film?
2: Yeah. Um, I'll just preface this by saying all our films, the idea behind the film, someone in the collective comes up with. And then other folks in the collective want to be a part of it? this film or that film. They put in their two cents. um, They decide what roles to play. They decide there's no script, so it's ad-lib what they want to say. Um, So in Day in the Life, we had some of our younger members, like 14 to 20s, 14 to 18, wanted to do a more hip-hop film. And Everyone was like, that's cool. What's the content? And Kieran Singh said, well, everybody, what we could do is we could have little parts in which everybody told a little bit of their story uh, of what it's like to live in these little communities, just a day in the life of a kind of ordinary northern community. So the film starts with... Ricky be on a move in the morning. So it's a morning at their community and Ricky just wants to have breakfast and take a shower That's all, and his house doesn't work. The stove is broken. The shower doesn't work. Uh, and this is very typical. So in these communities, money goes in, but the houses aren't built correctly. I don't know who's giving me money off but we know someone is. So once they put in a pipe for a toilet, it's supposed to go down, the pipe went up, so the toilet would always back up. So the first section is him just walking across a community trying to find a place he can cook breakfast and have a shower. And that segment is about the bureaucratic dysfunction or corruption uh, when it comes to indigenous housing in the North. And my colleague Tess Lee and others have really both studied but also shown just the the dysfunction, the, the structural dysfunction of housing. So that's the first part. And the second part is Melissa Jarrick 's story about um, uh, what a lot of people consider the new stolen generation. So the just the number of kids who are taken away from their mothers um, in the present. And that, that part also turns to an older history of the stolen generation. Then the third part has a funny little interlude about... Uh, it's like a little ghost story in the middle. Uh, then it goes to some young adult guys who want to start a hip-hop band and travel the world. And then the last part is... Rex Edmonds, who's a senior in the group and senior elder in the group. And it's his story about having drank a lot and then decided instead of drinking, he would teach the young people the, as he put it, some black fellow ways. But it's both really funny and and really serious at the same time because, you know, he's – you think you're seeing this kind of, okay, now I'm going to take my young people out to the bush and teach them our ways. And he is. And he does. Like, he, he, he in the film, he's doing that. In rea- reality, we do that. He does that. But, of course, he's taking them into the bush, and what does he find? But one mine after another. So, in this case, a lithium mine. And literally, that's what we found. We started going out, and it was like, boom, we... we we wound up in this new lithium mine. So they go and they go to the old guys who used to sing um, who are deceased. And then there's a temporal warp. And so the, the film goes from just can't take a shower because it hasn't work. The the colonial state is stealing your kids. You have these, these like spirits in the bush who are trying to do what they did, but they have to deal with cell phones, mm. the, to like the police. So we want to be a hip hop band, but the police are just constantly harassing everybody on the communities, which is absolutely crazy. Mm. Bust into your yards, yeah. They fine you two hundred, two hundred fifty dollars for one can of beer, beer, and if you don't, if you fine stack up, boom, you're in jail. And then even when you want to go, and you know, keep your tradition strong. What do you find? Your land's been dug out from underneath you. So, which makes it sound really depressing, but the film is not depressing. It's really quite resilient. And at the end, they ask the ancestors, and then the ancestors decide they're going to sing a corroboree, a song, and blow away all the white people back to the ocean. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) Which, Which is
2: always, the coddling always have a good joke at the end. The yeah, aspirational um, joke,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, just, you know, black film, black media, black creatives, <gasps> it's just such mm. a joy to watch because, um, yeah, like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people can, yeah, yeah. like actually bring that joy and um, laugh. Yeah. It's just like so many absolutely terrible issues, and I think that's part yeah. of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's like great strength um, in surviving yeah. this settler colonial state. Um, right, and we see yeah. that time and time again. Like, there's so many great comedies, especially that yeah. are played. Um, yeah, on this. No, continent. I think that's
2: really right. the the The, mo- the mother of my generation in Karrabing, so. The, the like 50 60 year olds Ruby when she was she was just just an amazing s- storyteller presenter in that way because there was you know she lived through really terrible times and like like harrowing and she'd be telling everyone and you just thought oh my god I can't bear this and then she would make this you turn and make the funniest turn that just mocked white people, and you just, it was just, you thought, oh, okay, I can hold it. Mm. Right? Right? Mm. They're, they're horrible, but they're also at core kind of ridiculous, if you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, so I think that's that spirit of, of Ruby Erwin is very much in God films. Mm. absolutely
0: now I do want to talk a little bit about the media in so-called Australia because obviously it is still orchestrated um through a white lens but I do think that aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people now through especially the use of social media are now able to directly broadcast their opinions and stories to the wider public um, and I particularly see this with the families of Aboriginal people who have died in custody and now they're really uh, yeah. able to yeah. broadcast their direct opinions and then it's the white media that is kind of using their content. Um, yeah. And so Aboriginal people can, you know, dictate a bit more about what they want to be broadcasting yeah. to the wider public. Yeah. Um, But what do you think are the barriers that are still in the media and film industries in allowing first nations people to tell their own
2: stories? You know, that's, that's a really important and good question. Um, It's where, it's where it's so weird for me to be by myself talking to you. You You're often in a group and I know it says I'm the director. I think in day in the life, I just say organizer or something, but we, we, we don't mean director in the director way and we're trying to figure out. Anyways, that's a long, that's another <laughs> conversation that's actually really important. Um,
0: but I guess also in saying that um, even having films that are, you know, created um, and produced by Aboriginal people, yeah, yeah, then yeah. they still have to kind of, um, you have to format yourselves in a way that you can present your yeah. widget well, to yeah. festivals like Myth. And so you do have well, the
2: title. <laughs> kind of, yeah, kind of. And this is where we were learning as we went along. For, for instance, how did I become director? And the answer to that has a history. And then when I, so let me, let me, when they decided we want to, we want to intervene. We want to, we want to get a different discourse in. And, you know, and everybody watches lots of TV, lots of films. So like, and, NITV, they, they know, they know the genres, um, but they just felt something like how the struggles that they live and the aspirations they had, they didn't see. And so we're all sitting there. and It's like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Okay. So we brought over someone who I knew who was, who had worked with communities in the U.S. actually, and just for craft stuff. And so we were all sitting around and, um, this filmmaker said, okay, what do you guys want to do? And they said, we're all going to tell the story. So that's the first thing. And she said, well, what about Beth? And they said, she's going to be in it too because she's always been in it. And then the the visiting filmmaker said, you know, you guys, for you, Beth is normal, but a viewer is going to see a white person and it's going to become all about that white person. And we're all like, yeah, we don't want that and I, I don't want that, right? So they said, fine, Beth can be director. Beth, you learn how to be a director because we grew up together and you, you know. Okay, that said, right? Suddenly the director's everything. And so then we spent two years, three years saying, no, 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 no. Beth is not, Beth is a member. She's not the director, right? which we've somewhat changed people's minds. But then after Tom, I said, you guys, it's never going to work. We have to change what we call me. They said, no, but who wants to be the organizer? (laughs) You do the shit ass work, right? But I'm like, no, because people don't, we all want everyone to see that this is stories coming up from maybe all of us, but I'm only one of all of us. And there's like 49 other people. So that's why I think it's really, the question's really important because how does, how do you, how do you not over purify, but not have a white person take all the bloody focus? I can't swear on this program. So I'm not swearing purposely, but you know what I mean? No focus. Okay. So that's one thing. The other thing is, to be honest, we don't package ourselves in any way. We just make mm. these films, and we've been extraordinarily lucky, gifted, whatever. People have been very generous um, to show them, and you can see the films are real. I find I just I find my colleague just, you know, stunningly amazing and interesting. Uh, you know, and again, I, we've known each other for like thirty-six years now. And I also find it stunning and amazing that we don't change. And we've gotten a lot of international and national recognition. We don't change. And the films still are kind of crazy. Like, I don't know if you noticed, but from one shot to another, clothes well. might change. <laughs> <laughs> Consistency, because we do it, because the way we produce these films is on everybody's schedule, whenever people want to do it. Mm. You know, it's like mm. make the production process conform, as they say, to our lives. Mm. The, the first two films, we worked with a great cinematographer, this guy, Ian Jones, who did 10 Canoes and stuff. And he was so flexible. because We had no idea what we we're doing. We had we didn't know what pre-production was. And he just went with the flow. But we still had to work on like a week, like a week production or whatever. And everyone's like, this, this doesn't, this is not our. You know this is not this is not how life is in these communities, so if we're showing how life is in these in our community, why are we making it in such a way that doesn't correspond to life in our... You see what I mean so so I also it's a long answer to say I don't know how to answer the question I think <laughs> I think I mean Rex Edmonds said. Something I found really important and interesting. He was asked, we were all there was it was Rex and Linda Yerwin and Celia Lewis, maybe good Gavin Bianamumi, get where we were. Someone asked Rex if he thought Cotterbing was a model for other communities attempting to not only tell their story but but deepen their relations to each other in their country through the practice of making films. And Rex said, well, yeah, we we might be a model, but the, the model we are, and I'm paraphrasing, he said the model we are is a model that says, do what is your way where you are. Don't do our way if that's not your way. Because then mm. that's just another person telling you that their way is your way. And and it's not unless it happens to be. So it was really just a great – and Kadabee is very committed. <laughs> like mm. Nobody is going to do anything they don't want to do. So mm. we have a lot of fun, you know, and – And then I think you can hear you can hear both the particularities of their lives, their voices, their 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 social vision, their land vision in a way that is both specific and I don't know how to say cognate to other places like like Mm. that's Mm. also like us here because it is real and rich and truly grassroots Mm. Mm.
0: well i think i mean you talked about this before but there's like five sections to Mm. stay in the life Mm. and i think for a lot of people when you know, you were describing all of the different kind of topics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just sounds like, you know, oh, no. there's so yeah. much, so much there. And it's only a half an hour film. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, so yeah. just like within that alone, you can see all of the, you know, dynamics yeah. and yeah. just how much you know creative energy um, is produced through this collective. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well that's right. I think that's really right. And And the the film really hangs together through the soundscape. And Kieran Singh, who's, I think it was 14, 15 at the time, and uh, Ethan Jarek, who's about the same age, and then Gavin and Natasha Lewis, Bigfoot, they've created this beautiful hip-hop soundscape that with say radio clips and stuff that that repeats and deepens various refrains as you go across so that by the end it's very much a film right mm. um, and please note that like kieran i was like kieran come on you you're good you're really good at being a director and he's like i don't want the hassle i was like it's not so bad come on we'll direct it together Um, and he's 14. He's like, we have some of the youngest members are like two, (laughs) But, but it's also really rich generationally. So the oldest members are like 60 and then the youngest are kind of newborns. They don't know their members yet, but so it's got that. It's also got that great intergenerational dialogue thing going on. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I think, I think. Rex Edmonds is right. I think as much as possible, you try and get very good at what your vision is, you know, and, and understanding that you have your, and again, this is Mindy Erwin. I'm trying to get you to understand that it's a lot of, not just you, but the listeners, that there are Mm. a lot of very, 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 uh, you know, very, savvy and folks that really have a position in this. And like Linda Yerwin who says we have our own, own country and we're connected. That's how our films work. That's how our practices outside of film work. In which everybody has their own, own opinion but we know that the film is this thing that works through the interconnections and interdependencies.
6: Mm.
2: So mm.
0: No, I love that the whole process is a reflection of the community
3: yeah.
0: um and i guess lastly because we are going to have to wrap it up um how can people watch this film um, and other work by Bing?
2: um well uh the, everyone has decided that we keep the films uh on vimeo behind password for, there's password protected mm-hmm. Vimeo site for all the films uh in large part because the films have generated income. So we have a basic rule that to make the, we make these films on iPhones. Yeah. And, and again, there's off. there's sometimes there four people, five people could be shooting one movie. You know, it's just, here's the, here's the iPhone, here's the iPhone, two or three iPhones, go for it. Everybody go for it. Um, so the, they, they cost some money, but the money they cost comes out of, you know, it comes, honestly, it comes out of the fact that this, I'm a you know, I'm a white settler American. So a lot of value accumulates around just that simple skin fact. So we scrape off the making of the films off of me, which is fine. It's good. That's what we long ago decided. And then the money we make goes to land-based work. And mainly the films are to deepen the social vision people in the collective have for an indigenous way of relating to each other in lands that emphasize each group's own country, but that they must stay interconnected if they were going to keep the seductions of extractive capitalism, settler colonialism at bay. You can't be picked off, again, Rex Edmonds, so smart about this, can't be picked off one by one if you're interconnected. Um, so anyway, so so the money we make go into those projects, it's really been working and thus we we kind of keep them behind a little bit of a password. So if you want to see them, you usually have to either ask or, uh, like, we get screening fees and stuff. If anyone wants to. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we, have, we have the usual uh, bank accounts and stuff. So that's a very long-winded way of saying they're not floating around. Just write us on Facebook on our Karabing Facebook page.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and you can check out Day in the Life um, that's showcasing at Myth, So definitely head to au, and, yeah, explore the whole program. So it's all yeah. online this year for listeners because, yes, we are in a global <laughs> pandemic, but I'm really excited that Myth could still be broadcast all across so-called Australia. Thank you, um, Elizabeth. Is there anything else that you wanted to say? No, no, no. Elizabeth? Just...
2: Just thank you on behalf of the other members of the collective, many, many of whom are out bush and outside of the ubiquitous internet and phone coverage. But really, on behalf of all of us, thank you. Do watch and enjoy. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> And just then we heard a conversation that I had with Elizabeth Povinelli from the Curribing Film Collective about A Day in the Life, which is currently showing as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival, 68 and a Half. So definitely check out MIF online at (laughs) www.mif.com.au. BDS Australia is hosting an online forum featuring boycott divestment and sanctions BDS co-founder Omar Bargudi on Saturday August 29 at 7:30 p.m. Joining Omar will be First Nations scholars Amy McGuire and Professor Tony Birch, as well as Palestinian Australians Dr. Randa Abdel-Fattah and Ms. Heberfather. They'll be discussing the shared experience of dispossession, state-based discrimination and racism, and how to counter it. Details can be found at bdsaustralia.net.au. That's bdsaustralia.net.au. Boycott Divestment Sanctions, BDS Australia, is part of the global effort to end support for Israel's oppression of Palestinians and pressure Israel to comply with international law. More details at bdsaustralia.net.au. BDS Australia is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. And that's all we have time on the show for today. Um, thank you so much for tuning in to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. So first up, we heard from Dr Sandy O'Sullivan talking about their development of a list of 101 Black writers and voices And Sandy is a Wiradjuri person and associate professor of creative industries at the University of the Sunshine Coast. And then we jumped into an interview that I had with Elizabeth Povinelli, who spoke about the Caribbean Film Collective's film, Day in the Life, which is featuring at the Melbourne International Film Festival, 68 and a half. And Priya.
1: Yeah, so um, just before we wrap up for the day, we wanted to draw your attention to a really important um, issue that's kind of come into a bit more public discussion uh, since the blast in Beirut, uh, which, you know, tragically happened last week and um, has caused a lot of damage, has displaced a lot of people, has put massive pressure on the health system, but a conversation that is really important that's coming out of that is about the kafala system, which is a sponsorship system for migrant workers. So it's, it's an exploitative system that's in place throughout the Middle East. And it's basically another, um, another term for modern day slavery, um, where people are effectively conscripted as domestic workers and, Um, have very few rights or put in, um, really exploitative labor conditions and it takes a massive toll on their physical and mental health. Um, and they're often subject to abuse. And I think this really intersects with issues around, um, Afrophobia and concerns around Black Lives Matter. um, because a lot of, a lot of the people that are, um, sort of brought into this kafala system are Black African, um, People who are then uh, working in these in these Middle Eastern countries. Um, So there are a couple of organizations doing some work um, raising money to get people out of the kafala system, but also to specifically help them in the aftermath of the blast. And so um, we just thought we'd flag a couple of those. So the first is the anti-racism movement or ARM which is a grassroots collective run by young Lebanese uh, feminist activists in collaboration with migrant workers and migrant domestic workers. So they do most of their work throughout centers in Lebanon in direct collaboration with migrant workers. And um, their website is armlebanon.org. And you can find them on Instagram at, at armlebanon. The next one we wanted to raise is This is Lebanon, which is a project of Domestic Workers Unite. And it's run by a coalition of former migrant workers and activists demanding the protection of migrant domestic workers and an end to labor exploitation and abuse with the aim to effectively end government sanctioned modern day slavery or the kafala system in Lebanon. So this is Lebanon's mission has expanded from simply exposing those abuses to one of campaign and advocacy. And you can find the stories of women that have been trapped in that system um, in their own words on this is Lebanon's Instagram page, which is at this is Lebanon 961. And you can also find more informa- information on their website, which is this is And finally, um, Coming a bit closer to home, film director Fatima Mawas, who's based in Melbourne, has organized a campaign uh, with some other organizers to help domestic workers escape Lebanon. Um, So if you'd like to get involved with this project, you can visit uh, the Chuffed webpage for that fundraiser, which is called Flights for Domestic Workers Fleeing Lebanon. And once again, this is targeted towards people that are caught up in those exploitative labor regimes who were just trying to get home, get out of that system and now are under that added pressure of um, an overburdened health system and um, a country that is reeling after the aftermath of those explosions. Um, Carly, where are you?
0: Yeah, absolutely,
1: Priya. <laughs> love it. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, huge show as usual. Um, and I reckon that's pretty much really all we do have time for today. So, Carly, mm. thanks. Thanks so much for chatting with me. See you the next start. week. Um, it's always great to hang out and record the show together. Ah, love it. Love it so much. All right. Well, everybody, take care of yourselves. Try and... Uh, Try and stay as healthy as possible. And we're now going to go to Lost in Science.